Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. That's why this week's episode is pushing out a day early. Our holiday weekend episode spotlights the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego's exhibition, Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian. The show is a 50th anniversary celebration of Anton's landmark work, 100 Boots, from 1973. MCASD's presentation also includes work featuring Anton's alter ego, the King of Solana Beach, and My Barbarian's universal declaration of infantile anxiety situations reflected in the creative impulse from 2013. It's a feminist performance work that centers matrilineal creative inheritance. The work's title references the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was co-authored by Eleanor Roosevelt in 1948, and Melanie Klein's 1929 essay, Infantile Anxiety Situations Reflected in a Work of Art and the Creative Impulse. Performers in the work include my first guest, Alexandra Sagade, and his My Barbarian mates, Malik Gaines and Jade Gordon, as well as artists Mary Kelly and Eleanor Anton. Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian is on view through February 18th, 2024. My Barbarian's work has been presented at museums such as the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, and the Museum of Modern Art New York. In 2021 and 22, My Barbarian was featured in a survey exhibition at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. We'll hear my 2013 conversation with Eleanor Anton on the second segment of the program. First up, Alexandra Sagade, after the break. Throughout her life, Faith Ringgold has made art that unapologetically expresses her experience as a black woman, artist, activist, and mother, all while amplifying the struggle for social justice and equity. Witness her groundbreaking practice in Faith Ringgold, American People, now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Chrissa in New York, through March 10th, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures, as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Krissa was a leader within avant-garde circles during her years in New York and was one of the first to incorporate neon into her practice. Co-organized by the Manil Collection and Dia Art Foundation, Krissa in New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Alexandra Sagade, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I think the first thing to ask is with whom did you cast Universal Declaration of Infantile Anxiety Situations Reflected in the Creative Impulse? And why did you cast why did you cast those people? <laughs> well, um 
among the stellar cast includes uh, Mary Kelly, the artist, uh, conceptual artist, um, and Eleanor Anton, another conceptual artist, both of them uh, known for work around um, feminist discourse and performance and, uh, you know, conceptual art, of course. And uh, the reason we cast them, one, Mary, uh, because she was my teacher at UCLA um, my mentor during grad school and actually mentored the entire group, my barbarian, which includes Malik Gaines and Jay Gordon, of course. And she had made a lot of work about motherhood. And the piece is about reimagining the historical legacies of art history, um, not just along the sort of patriarchal lines, but actually looking at a potential matriarchal or matrilineal lineage for art. Um, and that this would change the politics of that. And of course, Eleanor Anton, we asked, because uh, she never really formally mentored us, but just by looking at her body of work very early on and deciding that we were going to make performance art together, we realized that somebody had done a lot of the things we were interested in doing, uh, bringing theatricality into the gallery space, uh, playing with alter egos, playing with costume. <laughs> um, and so we uh, approached her. Additionally, our own mothers are also in the piece. Uh, yeah, I was working on, <laughs> on kind of a, a smart-ass question to that end. Something along the lines of, defend your other nepotistic casting, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that was a big part of what we were looking at. You know, Jade had just had a child. We'd been working together already 13 years. Uh, we had gone from being, you know, kind of upstart art kids to getting the degrees and starting to teach and becoming part of almost the institution, I guess you'd say. And so we realized we were shifting generationally. And um, so we were also looking at our own relationships to our moms and who had influenced us a great deal in all sorts of ways, obviously, um, all of whom had creative interests of their own, not all of whom were able to pursue those for various reasons having to do with their lives as our mothers. And so we invited them. And now it's, you know, a real time capsule, of course. Um, the mothers get older, you know, Jade's mother's no longer with us. Malik's mother has had a lot of uh, illnesses that she has been dealing with. And so the kind of moment that we were able to capture was a particular one. The whole thing holds up um, spectacularly well for many reasons, um, including lots of the little uh, inside the art world jokes that are that, that really permeate all 28 or whatever it is minutes of the thing, which is really like those inside references don't always hold up a decade on, but they, they sure do here. Um, Eleanor Anton is in the work as Eleanor Roosevelt. How and why one Eleanor is the other? Well, okay, that wasn't something that she was necessarily open to initially, I have to say. Um, she had her own thinking about Eleanor Roosevelt, wasn't sure she was the most stylish icon to portray. And Eleanor wanted to look uh, amazing on film, which she does. Um, she came up with the costume herself, including the little uh, fox, a dead fox around her neck. And the glasses, um, it's spectacular. Yeah, we'll it's have an image. It's and just even so great. The, uh, yeah, and the kind of um, sagging uh, hose around the ankle, you know, she she really made a character out of it. Uh, but the the reason was we were looking at other figures, historical figures that we could kind of um, map onto these amazing artists. And so in Mary's case, we were looking at Mary Cassatt, another artist who had, was very well known for uh, representations of, of motherhood. Um, and in Eleanor's case, you know, the 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 rhyme of her name uh, was a big part of it, but also we were really interested in Eleanor Roosevelt's universe, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So because all of these projects in some ways figured a kind of 
way of looking at culture as something that you care about in, in, a, in a way that kind of, you know, echoed the idea of motherhood itself. And so we were thinking of motherhood as a symbolic thing, um, not just as a literal thing. You know, we thought if anybody can do a dramatic reading of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and pull out not just its ironies, but also its um, enduring meaning, uh, it was Eleanor Anton. One of the things about your Universal Declaration that I think really holds up is the way it descends from so much of the work descends from the playful drag that is within Eleanor Anton's King of Solana Beach, Mm -hmm. not just like the specific work, but willingness or eagerness to use conceptual strategies that are simultaneously smart and funny and funny and smart, and that one doesn't have to make way for the other. I think that in a lot of kind of the third or fourth generation conceptual work of the present, that sense of playful cleverness slash humor um, has kind of been wrung out of the thing because the market needs the conceptual to be serious because that's worth an extra zero. What in... Is there anything specific in Anton's practice, maybe particularly King of Solana Beach, that you 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 three wanted to update address include feature Mm -hmm. well there is an element of the carnivalesque in her work that for us as you know gen x uh we identify with pretty directly um and maybe it isn't something that every generation has found useful in the same way but um, there is a playfulness and a way of playing with ideas that we respond to um, and if you look at the King of Solana Beach, there was something absurd at the very root of it. Um, Solana Beach doesn't really need or have any, you know, royalty per se. <laughs> um, what was she doing exactly? Um, but, you know, per se or not, <laughs> you know, her subjects. But at the same time, her um, performance of it had a kind of political uh, content. You know, there's this uh, desire to kind of carve out this space against things like parking lots coming in and, you know, the sort of destruction of gentrification. Um, So she was on to something. And I think that strategy was something we were particularly interested in in My Barbarian, which always uh, took theatricality as an opportunity to playfully engage the issues that were surrounding us and also to make fun of ourselves, which is something I think that her work does really well, often by pointing to what she both is and isn't, you know, at the same time. And I think that's one of the things that the King of Solana Beach is able to do. Her her sense of, you know, what kind of power she can have as a male king versus as a female artist working in Southern California, um, it creates a kind of gap um, that you end up thinking about a lot when you look at the work. And so one of the things we wanted to do, you know, one of the other reasons we were interested in Eleanor uh, Roosevelt was because of Valkyrie Industries, her her furniture company. <laughs> we had visited, you know, where she uh, had that in in, uh, in upstate New York. And uh, it was this Dutch colonial furniture that she hired local people to make. And it was a kind of uh, endeavor that was both commercial, but also had an element of like a positive impact hopefully, on the uh, economy directly surrounding her. So we kind of reenacted that that uh, furniture company in Eleanor's studio using some of her own techniques. We built, you know, 
cardboard standees of the furniture, echoing her interest in flats and, uh, you know, large scale paper dolls and things like that, and became workers in her factory, which was her studio. The sanding of one of the pieces of cardboard furniture is one of the laugh out loud moments um, in the work. (laughs) Not for the first time, your work, and I guess I mean not just this work, but y'all's work in general, is a reminder that LA has been not only a hub of art that descends from feminist thought and feminist critiques, but that for over a generation, I mean, really going back to at least the 80s, uh, LA has been the hub of art uh, that descends from feminist critiques. Mm. Why? I mean, more so than New York, more so than London, more so than Berlin, yada, yada, yada. Why do you think LA has been such a particular place from which both men and women, of course, um, Mm. have made um, art informed by feminism? Well, I think we can look at the histories of Woman House and other spaces that were created um, where people like Eleanor Anton, of course, uh, worked. And, you know, uh, we can think about also the way that the educational system in Los Angeles fostered uh, the the artists who are there. Um, but performance and LA's history seem to have a confluence, you know? Um, so it's, as this as conceptualism, it's like if, you know, ABEX is sort of New York's uh, DNA or something like that, or it's a, what do you call it? Primal scene. Um, you know, the, the West Coast is much more aligned with historically conceptualism. And, and as a result, feminism, you know, as a male cis male gay artist uh, of a certain generation, these were my teachers. Um, I often do think about a kind of absence of uh, other artists who may have been in the system if uh, the AIDS crisis hadn't happened the way that it did. But in the absence of some mentors, uh, there stepped in a bunch of people who um, are part of that generation. And Eleanor, of course, taught at UCSD. Mary Kelly taught at UCLA. We can list many others. The, uh, you know, I think a lot of it often is about sort of circumstances. And yes, there also is an openness to possibility in the history anyway of LA art. Um, That comes, I think, a lot from that. This is the first time I've seen Universal Declaration in a couple years and was kind of astonished to realize that it's a decade old now. Yeah. I, I think one of the ways in which the art world has moved toward my barbarian is that what was once considered the province of theater or experimental theater has increasingly been welcomed as performance. Um, that probably co-started. Um, in the late 70s and 80s in avant-garde video in California and in the 80s in downtown New York. But it's now become super commonplace. You are as likely to find performance in Minneapolis as you are in L.A., perhaps more so in Minneapolis because it has less traffic than L.A. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, think differently about theater in relation to performance now than you did either in 2013 or when My Barbarian got started about 10 years before that? That's a good question. I mean, there are ways in which it definitely changed as a result of the pandemic, 
for one. I mean, when we had our retrospective, or I guess I should say, when we had our survey exhibition at the Whitney in 2021, uh, we were very aware <laughs> of the fact that it was going to be difficult to make live performances. And it was a challenge every single time, which made us think a lot more about the relationship to the camera and liveness. And of course, streaming became an op option. I think a lot of people maybe are a little tired of it now. But in that moment, it was a kind of lifeline for a lot of us. And so, you know, when we had an opportunity to put together our uh, songbook performance, we did that as a live, uh, live from LA concert that was broadcast to New York, you know, through the Whitney's um, hosting. So we do think about it, I think, even more, even more as a part of it, I, I would say, uh, than we did when we started. Although when we started, one of the first things that we did that broke through was a video that we put on YouTube. And that was in 2003, uh, Unicorns LA, if anybody's interested. But, um, you know, I think a lot, of, um, a lot of what we were interested in as Southern California kids, uh, or I should say California kids, Malik's from Fresno, Jade is from uh, LA, and I am from San Diego, was mediated performance because that's how we saw a lot of it early on. You know, we were MTV generation. So I don't think we made a huge distinction initially. I mean, we loved theater because you could do so many amazing things live and you felt the audience right there. But if a camera's in the room, that doesn't make it not theater. So I think we were always interested in it. And, I, and I'm glad to see that some of the kinds of um, prohibitions against theatricality have broken down, that there are, uh, there's a more fluid conversation between popular and um, fine <laughs> art forms. I don't teach, but if I if I did, one of the things I would share with students early in a course is a 2013 conversation you three did with Andrea Fraser in Bomb Magazine, which includes kind of within it um, an answer to the question I just asked you, and it's a really good answer, so I'm going to read it here. Fraser says, we've located my barbarian not in an art tradition or theater tradition, so much as in a tradition of critical practice. It's self-defined by the question and ongoing investigation of what constitutes a transformative cultural practice. Um, the whole Q&A is really good. We'll have a link in on, on the show page, as well as a link to uh, Unicorns LA on, um, on YouTube. The final segment in Universal Declaration is a re-re-re-re-re-re-re-staging uh, that recalls Michelangelo's Pieta, a kind of mothering source story for Christianity, a kind of um, part of part of Christianity's, frankly, bizarre story about how women are to be, um, including apparently virgins to death. So in a way, Michelangelo's Pieta is the construction that all of Universal Declaration responds to and also responds against. Why was it important for you three to address it? How did you how did you decide it was something to take on? There are a couple of different reasons, but well, I'll say one was that we, you know, one of the nice things about being a performance artist in the early 2000s was there was money in the art world to travel. <laughs> and we were able to go places we never would have been able to afford to go without uh, these invitations. And one of them was Italy to do a project in uh, Trento that was associated with Manifesta and all this. And so we went through the Vatican and saw the Pietà. And were kind of awestruck by not only how weird it was, I mean, it was an amazing artwork, but, you know, this like idea of like marble folds is so weird. And, you know, there's just so many things that you're responding to. And then there's the group of people around you and how they respond to the work. And, um, you know, not to say it's not incredibly amazing achievement of sculpture, <laughs> uh, but it also carries a cultural um, 
signification that you were just talking about that is way beyond the work. And that image, uh, something like care, um, something like mourning and grief strikes a chord. But what we were not interested in was recapitulating a kind of essentialist sense of what the mother is, saying that mothers are always women, for one, um, saying that sons are always uh, this sort of sacrificial hero, <laughs> you know, and looking at these actually as positions that anyone can occupy. And so in the final sequence, we do a sort of dance, sort of choreography, where each of us switches off being Mary and each of us switches off being Jesus in, in terms of just the pose itself. We're also kind of wearing like kind of things I think we bought in Berlin that were like uh, our, our hipster clothes because we wanted to look like a kind of um, Tanztheater troupe, you know? <laughs> so there's always like 10, 20 million references on top of each other in the work. But in that particular moment, you know, Jade was having her first child. Uh, Malik and I had been together as a couple, uh, probably something like 15 years. And we were thinking a lot about our relationship to each other as artists, our relationship to the group, and how we had to kind of take care of each other, and how this was going to be switching, you know, who was going to be doing what, how we were going to work together. And so for some reason, that gesture of laying on each other's laps, and looking down and looking kind of up, um, felt like a way to explore that. And so we did. Finally, the video opens with Mary Kelly uh, almost opens with Mary Kelly playing the piano. Does Mary Kelly play the piano any better than Eleanor Anton types? <laughs> well, I think so. Actually, that's oh. literally, that's literally her piano playing. And oh, um, it is. It is. I didn't know that? Yeah, she's playing the piano. And uh, no, working with Mary Kelly. I mean, she was so important for this project because you know, as she says in the video, if the law of the father is the sort of you know law against incest, right, in the sort of Freudian dynamic, but also in everything, right? The law of the mother, which is under-theorized, is that you can't kill your brothers and sisters. And for us, that was important as a collective, right? When we asked her if she would participate, uh, she said, sure, uh, come over and we'll talk about what I will do. And we asked specifically about an essay she'd written called Miming the Master, which was uh, very influential to us as well about the sort of position of gender in relationship to the artist and the avant-garde. When we got to her house, she was our, <laughs> we got to her house and she was sort of like, come in. We opened the door and she's already at the piano playing. She's like, this is the composition we're going to use. And so Malik set our voices to that music. And so it was a collaboration between the two of them. And that was actually her piano playing. So yes, she does. I don't know that Eleanor types. <laughs> <laughs> From all appearances, Eleanor does not type. <laughs> Alexandra Sagade, thanks so much. <laughs> yes, thank you. Have a great day. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Robert Frank and Todd Webb, Across America, 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history, but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. 
Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th to January 7th, 2024. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to BAMFA.org. And we're back. Eleanor Ann, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi. So your show at the Wallach Art Gallery at Columbia is titled Multiple Occupancy, Eleanor Anton's Selves, and it deals with the persona you took on over the course of a couple of decades uh, in the late 60s, the 70s, and, and so forth. Yeah, er, the very early 70s through the end of the 80s, I was uh, working with the selves, and I think maybe, yeah, let's say that's about it. It's about two decades. So you weren't the only artist who played with Personae in the 1970s. Cindy Sherman did it later on, as did Bonnie Shirk, Martha Rossler, a number of artists. And I wonder well, if you uh, thought... Wait, wait, wait. What are we calling Persona, okay? What are you meaning by it? Well, the adaptation of, of roles and, 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 uh, and of another. Okay, it is a complicated word. In my case, except Lynn Hirschman also, I think, had a complex uh, relationship to her a character, Roberta Brightmore. And I had, especially, you could say, with Eleonora Antonova, my uh, African-American ballerina with Diaghilev's Ballet Ruth. Well, Antonova got, she almost ran away with me. She got more and more complex. So I think a persona and a role, or let's say a persona is even more, let's say it's more um, precise and more layered than a role, which, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm a daughter to my mother and uh, she's my mother. And of course, once you start investigating that, that is so complicated. <laughs> but so I'm not saying it's not complicated, but you have to investigate in them. And some people like actually like uh, Sherman, who I, I think is a really good artist, uh, tended to investigate, or uh, let's say put on a role and let you do the guessing where, you know, what, you know, genre you normally see it in or like what movie or whatever. And, but I took my Antonova into places, or let's say she took me into places 
into a whole world and a whole life that through photography, film, video, live performance, also life performance when I lived with her, plays, I was doing theater plays. I know I'm forgetting something. Oh, drawings. So, and of course, all her writings, her recollections. And so this is something that I don't really know what it is. As I say, the only one who I think as far as I can recall right now, who worked um, anywhere near that closely would have been Lynn. And Lynn, of course, in a sense, Lynn couldn't stand it anymore and killed her off in in Italy. So <laughs> I never did that. I just sort of abandoned her at some point in the early 90s. That was it. Coming up with the right word or words is tough, but... But the, the the assumption of another, which is, you know, one of those phrases I'll regret in the morning, you know, that's something that Bonnie Shirk did up in San Francisco, that Martha Rossler did in, in Southern California and San Diego um, as well. And, you know, it's been a number of years since y'all started these portrayals of self. And I wonder if you've reflected on why a number of artists were, you know, on the same playing field more or less at you know you know substantially but not entirely at the same time that's actually an interesting question and considering all the interviews i've done in my life i don't think anyone ever asked me that before <laughs> okay well i know that one of the things is all right i always considered myself um, and i think i was and probably still am if you extend the meanings beyond the uh, formalist ones a conceptual artist and a number of us were uh, considered us considered that they were conceptual artists. Cindy Sherman came a little later, so I don't think she worried about that. But and, and I guess just I should note that Cindy Sherman came out of Buffalo, New York State, and you and Bonnie Shirk and Martha Rossler, for example, were all California. Right. We were not formalists in the ways that the boys were. There were some women who were, but we were not. And we were very interested in in autobiography, most of us, all the people you mentioned were feminists and are feminists. And we were concerned with, as I say, the, the self, the self in the world and in her mind. And, and then of course, what is the self? Uh, the self is, the self is, is so tenuous, you know, and so fluid. So the, especially me who was brought up on Endless fairy tales, the blue book of fairy tales, the black book of fairy tales, the red book of fairy tales, the Andrew Lang fairy tales. There were so many, and then the Grimm brothers, and all of these, and also, you know, these marvelous shtetl stories of my mother's, and you know, my great heroes, Robin Hood, and you know, all of that, Count of Monte Cristo, and all this sort of heavy, sort of magical romance that I became interested. In, it's not even interested, I immediately was attracted to invented selves. Now, you have to understand, I was always aware, I, to this day, I'm such a believer in the fluidity of the self, I don't know exactly, I've lived many, many years, and I don't really know 
what people mean by the self. I know what the self is in a moment, you know, when I'm doing a particular thing, when I'm thinking about something, when I'm suffering from something, whatever, I know what my self is feeling then. And I know that I recognize myself in the morning when I look in the mirror. So uh, obviously there are things that, that remain. However, I really was, became an actor before I was an, you know, a visual artist, I hate that word, because I didn't think I had a self. And I thought, all right, I'll borrow other people's. And this is before I was the 70s. This is way back in the late 50s sometimes and early 60s. And then I, when that didn't work out because I'd have to play other people's selves and I wanted not the ones I would choose to be. I wanted to play Miss Julie, say, from, you know, one of the great roles and or perhaps Antigone. And instead they always made me the wisecracking girl next door, you know, who never gets the guy and, you know, is just not what I had in mind. So when I became an artist and got interested in autobiography, I had to make up lives and then I made up people and I actually kind of made, had a, ended up with a tripartite system in which my male self was the king, my, my female self was the ballerina and then there a friend of mine asked me, well, you know, like, are all yourselves so grand? And I said, well, not really. I'm you know, I didn't have such a grandiose opinion of myself. So I said, all right, I'll choose a nurse. I'm also a nurse. And it was between that and airline stewardess in those days. And I chose a nurse. And of course, she turned out to be grand and marvelous. And, and you managed to get the airline stewardess in a little bit because the nurse yes, had to be yes, hijackers. My friend, my friend, the airline stewardess. Yes. And in those days, there were only airline stewardesses. And I remember the Pan Am ones, they had these funny hats that made them look slightly uh, ridiculous. They had this sort of orange uniform. And they rarely talked to you if you were uh, a passenger in their plane, if you were female. Um, at least that was my experience. So I think they were looking for men to rescue them from being airline stewardesses. Well, I want to come back to a couple of those specific works in a moment. But you mentioned Robin Hood and your interest in fairy tales. And there's a, a wonderful, open, expansive Q&A in the catalog for the for the Wallet Gallery show between you and Emily Liebert, the curator of the show. And one of the reasons you gave for why the idea of personal transformation held your interest for so long was you cited your childhood interest in Robin Hood. And I wonder if you remember if you had a particularly playful imagination as a child and if that is part of what surfaces in the work later. Oh, man. <laughs> Did I have an imagination? To this day, if I hear a weird sound, I have immediately gone through the whole crime that has occurred, including, you know, like catching the person or not, or maybe with my last words, I can write in my own blood. Usually they're not so bloody. Uh, but basically, yes, I have always had a, a ferocious imagination. The imagination, you know, it's not a lovable thing. There's at least my experience of it has always been rather fierce. Not that I'm thinking of dragons all the time, not at all, but, you know, it encompasses, if it's going to be interesting, it encompasses a wide range of feelings and experiences, or at least, you know, the ones one might know about at different ages. 
and or imagine at different ages. Like when I was playing with paper dolls and I'd imagine sexual, you know, sex between two paper dolls. And I was like, I think I started with them about eight or nine and, you know, and I draw genitals on the man and, and press them together and go, ooh, ooh, ooh. And, um, <laughs> well, I didn't know. I was doing the best I could. And, but all of these, you know, the richness imagination is, has a lot of, uh, well, of course, not the sex. That was cute. But though I had sexual crimes, some of the dolls would kill each other for sex, for, you know, like jealousy or something. And then I have a trial and flush them down the toilet if they were guilty. So it was, you know, very, the least little thing could turn into an opera. And there is a lot of, you know, darkness if you have imagination. It is, that's, it's not, you know, Walt Disney. And then if you think of Walt Disney, half the time they're beating each other up anyway. So I think even he was aware of, of the fierceness of, you know, of the imagination. So in 1979, you created uh, Before the Revolution, which was uh, you as a living actress with a cast of six puppets. If you count the lamb, there's seven. <laughs> seven. How closely related was, was that idea, was that performance slash presentation, how closely was that related to the things you were doing as a child? Well, it certainly continued, I, I think probably came out of when I started, I started working as an artist with the paper dolls because I had to have characters having interactions with each other. I had to make up stories. I'm a passionate storyteller. So, and it's through narrative, through one's experiences, you know, with the stories around you and that happen to you and that you, uh, that happen to others, that you know yourself, whoever yourself was at that time, whether I was a ballerina, a king, or a nurse. And the, what happened when I did that, that it started earlier in the mid-70s with my paper doll nurse works, then to do the grand nurse Eleanor Nightingale to find the other side of nursing when it was a grand and one of the first professions for women that I needed. I had 42 puppets in that. And they were life scale. They were masonite. They were no longer paper, uh, paper dolls. And I, they were on bases with wheels, and I wheeled them around, and I talked for all of them. And uh, many of them were soldiers, so they had different dialects. And I'm horrible in dialect, but I managed to get through, you know, Cockney and Scotch and Irish, and you know, uh, even though it was. <laughs> it must have been really funny. But the those, so that when I got to Before the Revolution, which works, starts with the problems of Antonova as a black ballerina wanting to dance the white roles, the great white roles, they are called the white ballets, Swan Lake, Glacial Feed, Sleeping Beauty, the ones, because you wear white tutus, you know, and, and they're called the white ballets, that's what they are called, those classical romantic ballets, and she wants to play those because they're in a sense every ballerina's legacy. And he wanted her to play these exotic roles, which frankly I think are more interesting, but all right. So she didn't. She wanted to play 
the others, and instead he wanted to do, create the new ballets, Pocahontas and Cleopatra and, you know, Scheherazade. And as I say, I think these characters were infinitely more interesting. And of course, they were the basis of the modern ballets, modern at the time of the Diaghilev Ballet Russe. And so Antonova fights it out with her, and that's where she wants to play Marie Antoinette, the white queen. And and then there is a kind of, I also have clothes, which are um, cardboard clothes put on with gold clothespins so that the puppet of Diaghilev, who I say is, you know, my height, he then becomes Louis the Sixteenth, the husband of Marie Antoinette. And so I'm able to have several levels of my characters, their characters, my puppet's characters, and everyone's taking on different characters. And what happens is the, it's the revolution that went bad, as we know. It did many good things, but we know what happened to the French Revolution. And all of that comes in there through the voice of Nijinsky, the mad dancer, the great choreographer-dancer. And it was taking, as I say, some of the methods I had used earlier with the puppets and then enlarging the character of of Antonova to deal with her particular situation in the then white world of ballet, which in some ways it still is, but it's now, of course, not the way it used to be. In, in the, we're talking the early 20th century. I was not in the early 20th century, but Antonova was because she was with the Ballet Russe. And then that just became play of of failure and loss and the end of dreams and two other groups of works from that period I wanted to talk about are are the nurse works that you referenced earlier um works that you made as little nurse Eleanor and as nurse Eleanor Nightingale and in those in those works you use feminist critique to open up a subject and you've talked about that a whole you know good bit over the years so I don't want to little you know, nurse ask you to read is now. Eleanor Anton RN but the big grand nurse is Eleanor Nightingale. That's right. Yeah. And so, about twenty-five years after you make these works, you know, playing with the idea of a nurse and nurse in history, grounding it all in feminist critique, along comes an artist like Richard Prince, who takes the original idea, which was yours, makes sexy paintings and slaps. Well, a I don't price own down. nurses. You see, I've never been. No, uh, you know. But I did yeah. notice that you've long been aware of Prince's. I actually like his Moving work. into the field. Yeah, I mean, you... I Other think people you don't think it's politically correct, I guess, but I actually find his work very amusing. His nurse works, anyway. And I wonder if if his kind of moving into that subject, that's a horrible word, provides kind of an art historical reference that you find amusing, something that refers to kind of the original feminist critique or, you know, that you helped pioneer or if it takes away from it. Well, by, by uh, being slick remember, thing. he's taking a different position. There is nothing feminist critique about his because he's dealing with, you know, sort of the covers of, you know, paperback novels of adventure and sex and whatever. And so, and also, but they end up as very, you know, lonely figures, you know, both comic and sad. And I, I think one of the th reasons that nursing, that I chose nursing instead of uh, the airline stewardess 
is because it's one of the roles, one of the few roles that are given to women, which is as, you know, as the comforter and the 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 one who takes care of the motherly role in you know in its most you know intense and so there is in a way because it's so now there are male nurses but then they didn't used to be and there was a there was always a kind of sexual feeling that people like nurses for one thing they deal with you know with the things of the body so they deal with everything from the, you know, making you comfortable to cleaning, you know, making sure like cleaning your beds and then, you know, taking care of your shit when they have to, when you're in the hospital sick. So, and also, you know, taking part in the operations, being there to wipe up your blood or whatever. But so there is this intensity, which gives them a kind of passionate role in a sense. And the culture, I think, has sexualized the contemporary culture sexualized that I don't know about the older culture you know the 19th century relation to nurses but certainly well they may also because the nurses an artist like yeah I mean an artist like Mary Reed Kelly who's who's absolutely a feminist has made you know video work in the last decade kind of pointing out not only about nurses their their early professionalization the history around them but also that sexiness question. Yes. So, but I think, and I also, they deal intimately with strangers. So there's a lot of reasons why some of those sort of cultural tropes can have arisen in relation uh, to them. And in fact, my earliest uh, nurse video was the, was the adventures of a nurse in which I have another, I needed you know, my, the doctor I work for, a patient, you know, one after another, and it ends up um, always, each scene ends up fucking, and then little nurse Eleanor gets abandoned, remember we're talking about, you know, like a couple of inches high paper dolls, and gets... That you're holding off. Yes, but they, they, yes, I'm holding them with my hands, and they... And in a sense, they're never far from my body because my body dressed in a nurse's uniform is sitting on the bed in the video, you know, moving them around and they can never move by themselves. So it's part of my sort of little girl fantasy as well. And but they are they have, you know, all of those things, the good things they do and then the how some of that that is accepted by the culture and at the same time uh, as i said sexualized where there's nothing wrong with being sexualized it's just that it's always something slightly titillating okay it's kind of changed now but i'm sure some of it is still there also their independence you know they're away from home they're taking care of strangers and in your work as you were noting has this very clear feminist take on it and Prince's, you know, does not. And I guess I was wondering yeah, but I don't if make speeches, you, feel- you see. So except uh, I made speeches against the war and things like that in uh, Eleanor Nightingale. There were people who said that I really wasn't a feminist artist, but I was a feminist. Nobody could deny that. And I think I was and still am. Everything I do is through my voice, my voice as a woman, as a human and as an artist. And now at this point is a woman growing older, which is a different situation. And his is, I know, is totally a different, he doesn't have that aspect of it, but he does have the sexualized aspect. 
and that is the cultural one. And uh, I just find them, I have room for multitudes. I just find them funny and often, you know, attractive, sometimes scary. I find them, you know, original. I like them. They're not like everybody else's. My guest is Eleanor Anton. We'll be right back after a break. And I'm back with Eleanor Anton. Before the break, we were talking about a way one artist has zagged away from the feminism of the work you did in the 70s. But I think one of the major stories that has has kind of quickly solidified in the last few years in, in major art exhibitions has been the impact of feminism on art, not just art by women, but art, period. It's been in a number of the... Oh, yeah, we did. We affected all those guys, even earlier yeah. than now. You know, so some of the shows that have dealt with that in the last couple of years have been State of Mind, which was organized by the Orange County Museum of Art and the Berkeley Art Museum as part of Pacific Standard Time. Helen Molesworth's This Will Have Been show at the MCA Chicago and the ICA Boston and so on. And of course, you were a key protagonist in all of that. And I wonder if you ever now sit back and think about the ways in which feminist practice has most impacted broader, broadest art practice now? And, and if so, what a couple of those things are? Well, I've seen it, seen the culture change. Yeah, I think of those things. But, you know, I'm very busy doing my new work. <laughs> and, you know, which, so I don't have too much time to think about things. But we absolutely, I know, were responsible. You know, I mean, everyone... They don't, the 70s, people talk about the 70s. Look, the 70s were really the continuation of the 60s. And we, except maybe things started to change a little bit later on when more money came into the art world, you know, with money became respectable in the art world. Before that, it was like, you know, like everyone I knew was like, I was a professor for 30 years at University of California, San Diego. Uh, so people taught or they painted houses or they did, or they were rich to start with or whatever the artists I'm talking about. But so later in the seventies, the, the galleries and the dealers and all of a sudden they be, well, I always had a gallery, so I'm not putting down galleries. They show your work, but you know, the dealers who were the gallerists, but and collectors and all these people became important. And I find that has been um, actually a very bad thing for the, for the uh, art world because it's brought down the conversation considerably. But aside from that, the 70s, you know, it was the liberation. It was the times of liberation. It was women's liberation, gay liberation, black liberation, which had already, you know, begun earlier. The, uh, these were tremendously rich times. And, the, and also liberation for art, you know, conceptual and all sorts of possibilities. At this point, we were bringing in, as I say, autobiography, all sorts of, of new ways of working that were non-formulaic. And in fact, we thought we would change the world. Haha, <laughs> well, you know, the world, <laughs> the world is, it's very, uh, you know, it holds on very hard. It doesn't change that easy. But I do think things have gotten better and have changed from us. But that kind of, I've never lost that sort of passion for the avant-garde for exploring. And, and now my new work, which is, oh, and one of the things that I was actually not approved of for was even probably worse than my feminism was my theatricalism. So the and theater was like a real bad word, you know, in the art world, in modernism. 
So, and when you think of Magritte, you had mentioned Magritte. I mean, you know, who could be more theatrical than Magritte? But he was mad at them all too. But, and the thing is that now, you know, I'm making these big, I'm doing ancient Greece and Rome with live actors and these big still pictures. I kind of think of them as still movies. And, and they're very allegorical. It's another word that the art world doesn't like until lately, actually. You know, allegory. Until then, until fairly recently, it was a word that was not much liked. In fact, a lot of the things that I've been concerned with all my life as an artist, I see them all around me and I'm really delighted. I, you know, you mentioned theatricality. I think State of Mind, the show about California conceptualism around 1970 from a couple of years ago, really pointed out how many California artists at that time were interested in theatricality, not just women, but men too, up and down. Oh, yeah. The drag. I mean, it was really a striking you know, oh, part yeah, of the show. Oh, yeah. All sorts of. Yeah. I also, also, we were funny, you know. I mean, they, you know, they, they didn't take John Baldessari very seriously in those days because the boys, even though he was one of the boys and he's taller than they are, they thought he was too funny. And yeah, no, the show was very funny, and much of the work is, that's a very big part of it. The human oh, a whole bunch of people, you know, or too gross if you're dealing with Paul or um, Paul McCarthy or, or what's his name, um, Bird and Chris. Though Chris always ha- had a simpler form, he was always, in a sense, more, more minimalist, and, you know... The humor is drier in Chris's yeah, work. Yeah, and, uh, and extremely direct, whereas Paul was always much more theatrical and ridiculous. But his ridiculousness was wonderful. So to go back into your oeuvre, the work not in the show at the Wallach, but concurrent to the work that's there is is your very famous conceptualist piece, Carving a Traditional Sculpture. Um, 19, it's from 1972. You mentioned the revolutions of the 70s a moment ago. And of course, one of those was women's lib and Central to that was Roe v. Wade, and you made carving while Roe v. Wade was pending. Was that a conscious decision to to undertake that work while courts were deciding the future of false women's bodies? No, I was watching passionately to see what would happen, but you know, but in the courts we were watching all of those things because you know I was an active feminist. But the the really when I did it, I did it. As okay, I had just finished or was going to be soon finishing up 100 Boots. I, I guess you know that piece. And, oh, very well. Yeah, and so, and you know, I had a, I knew that my show, it was going to end after the, I mailed the last card out of the last boot image um, after the show of the boots at, at MoMA. So all of that was in the works, and then that summer I was wondering what. Uh, was I going to do, you know, that was new. And I I really was lost because the boots had occupied my life for like, I had worked from before and then I had shown before, but this was like, it had occupied my life for like three years. And I said, well, when in doubt, go back to yourself. And what I did was I did carving, obviously as a feminist, take, an ironical take on the seriousness, so-called, of people like, uh, you know, Joseph Kasu, who personally I like, and did some interesting work, but, you know, they all talk 
you know, the way they talk, that very horribly tedious prose style that they all had. So, you know, this was like a, a kind of, uh, okay, I'm going to give you a rigid formulaic system. And at the same time, it obviously played with the idea of, you know, of the the ways that women's bodies are, you know, carved down to make uh, what is considered pleasing uh, to men and to the whole culture because, you know, we women would take over, you know, the ideas that we would see all the time around us in the movies and everything else. Like, you look at the magazines now. I mean, it, it's supposed, you're supposed to be anorexic to look beautiful. And that is, you know, like, that's awful. Yeah, it, it just holds a wall like like nothing from the era, really. It, it, it's an amazing piece. So you weren't consciously going out of your way to to make the work as Roe v. Wade was pending. But I, you know, there's a quote that Columbia and the Wallach have have used a couple times in promoting the show. It's something you said in 1974, and 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 here's the quote quote. I consider the usual aids to self-definition, sex, age, talent, time, and space, as tyrannical limitations upon my freedom of choice. And I thought the, the, the use of those last three words was really interesting, and especially in, in context in 1974. And, and I wonder if that was a conscious reference to, I will to what had for just happened. control of our bodies. Uh, the word choice it, oh, it doesn't only belong to us in that context. You know, like, uh, what are you going to choose for Christmas? You know, I mean, a choice is, uh, I, no, okay, I absolutely still believe that. Though as I'm growing older, I know there are certain things that are in, have nothing to do with my choice. But, yes, I'm an ardent feminist. I was an ardent feminist. I was very, very concerned about the, you know, about Roe versus Wade. And, but this particular piece, it was in, you know, it was in, our minds, but also you must forget, not forget the Vietnamese War was in our minds, perhaps more often because it was like a constant, you know, tumor that was invading the country as well as as Vietnam, our country as well, and so there were many things that were on my mind, but. When that summer, when I knew the boots would be finished, you know, after they closed up shop at, at MoMA, and, and I had to say, what are you going to do? And I went back to myself. I went back to myself as a woman and obviously was playing with, you know, the ideas of, of you know, the way traditionally we have been carved to uh, fulfill men's desires. And, of course, my body could never be, you know, like a skinny model. I'm too short. I have too big breasts. I mean, you know, all of these things. But I did lose weight. And, but I was, I was also very much enjoying kidding the boys, <laughs> the conceptual boys, giving them, you know, a really, really formalist system. And, but not doing with it what they they would do. You mentioned a moment ago the presentation of 100 Boots at MoMA in 1973. In getting ready to talk to you, I read the 2009 oral history you did with Judith Richards for the Archives of American Art. And in that oral history is a story I'd never heard before about some kind of interdepartmental infighting at MoMA over the exhibition, whose it would be, whose it could be. I'd never heard that story before. I bet most listeners haven't. And I'm wondering if you could tell that story, and then I have kind of a question about it after you do. Okay. Well, 
I remember Keniston McShine and a younger curator, and I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, but she kind of left to become dean of a, an art school, so she was no longer active in the, you know, in the art exhibition world, so I, I lost track of her, though I did bump into her once, met Jane, Jane Nicole, that's it. But the reason is I didn't, you know, uh, keep up a friendship with her, and I would occasionally see Keniston, and we'd hug each other and whatever, because he was still at the Museum of the Modern Art. This was years later. But, the, but her I didn't see until many, many years later. And they they got in touch with me. I think she got in touch with me and wanted to do a show of the booth because they had gotten really kind of famous around the country and I guess the world, I suppose. And what I said, well, I can't do it now because, which I think was rather brave, actually. I can't do it now, but I will be able to do it when it's time because I knew the piece would have to enter a museum to become art, officially become art. We were always concerned about that in those days since we didn't look like conventional art, you know, conceptual work. and Conceptualism was very yeah. new. Then you, you had to, you know, be accepted by a museum and then you were art. So, so I said, well, I'll be ready to do it, you know, and this was about, about, I guess, a year and a half before the show. So, and then they, what, two years, I don't remember. So they said, fine, fine. Okay. Well, apparently there were several problems. The main problem was Sarkowski, who I believe was the head of photography then. And I think Stieglitz was the original head of photography, and that was the first time they had photography in a museum. Steigen. You know, and they, I think they were amassing a collection. And then, well, I don't know if they were amassing. I don't think they gave them that much money. It wasn't as good as painting yet, but they were, you know, they were building the collection. And, but it was still not very respectable. Ben Sarkowski was fighting for respectability, but, you know, he had a... Uh, totally different temperament than, than artists like I have. And he thought it was like, he, he also, like, you know, that MoMA is the most hierarchical place in the world. So he said, this does not concern the, you know, the people who were doing it were painting and sculpture. And he said, this is not painting and sculpture, it belongs to photography. Of course, I will never show it because it's stupid and bad and whatever. I don't know what his words were. So there was a big fight, and they sent it to – I'm so glad they told me about this afterwards because I would have, you know, I would have like been like, oh, my God. But the, they had to send it to – I forgot who was the head of the museum then. He was a very well-known art historian of modernism, and he also – he was on my mailing list, which was – helpful. And so he said, oh, he said, no, it belongs. He decided it's perfectly okay to show it. And it belongs to painting and sculpture. If they want to show it, fine. And it was, I think, the first of the, um, what do they call those project shows? I think they had had them a number of years before, and then they stopped them for like a decade or two. And then they were going to start up again. And this was the first one. It had three rooms. I mean, it was really wonderful. And, but then the problem happened that the boots were going to be there. And I, so we're doing the show and then they tell it to me and, you know, then I could laugh, but oh my God. And then what happens is the, I guess it's whatever department, but the insurance, their 
panicking about the insurance because I was going to have uh, the cards were up. I was bringing the boots to New York. We were going to make about 20, 25 pictures as they visited various places, you know, that um, I knew in my childhood and whatever, and they made their way as it were slowly to the museum. And then the museum would mail out a card uh, from one of those, a new card every week, instead of me mailing it out, they would mail it out to my mailing list. It was really a very pretty, actually very elegantly designed show. But the boots themselves, because it's before the, you know, they used, they didn't have, everyone does installations now, but they, they didn't have installations. They had had them much, much earlier, you know, uh, in the old days, I, I guess with the surrealist show and things like that. But the, you know, for many years, they did not have that. And I had to bring the boots in. So they were going to just sort of be standing around in the three rooms looking at, the, um, at themselves in the cards and standing together in little groups or whatever. And about a week before I was coming in, I got a call. Uh-oh, we have a problem. The museum uh, says that they cannot leave the boots there because anybody could walk it out with one. And, and if you could let me jump in for just a moment with a quick bit of context. So this is 1973 at, at MoMA. In 1969, so recently enough to be in recent memory, MoMA had tried one of its first really daring installation shows, a show called Spaces that included the work of Michael Asher and Larry Bell, in which in which kind of objects, not, not boots, obviously, but kind of freestanding you know, humble, non-bronze things were in the middle of galleries, and and it was you well, know a bit of a sculpture or as yes, um, as environment really. You know, well, kind yeah. of as, so as, sculpture you know, in it, some fashion will be acceptable. Well, but it didn't go well when MoMA did this in 1969. Among among other things, they uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny in retrospect held the opening on New Year's Eve. And and so, you know, the show, I, you know, I don't know if trashed is quite the, quite the right word, but it was, you know, the show was heavily used by the audience. So I imagine in 1970. Abused. Yes, that might yeah. be a better word. I thought you said so used, I imagine and it, I thought, well, what do they do, pick up the stuff and carry it around? Well, there were people making out and things like that in these, you know, California perceptualist spaces and things. And, and, and then I think there was, you know, damage to a Larry Bell. And so I imagine in, in, in the summer of 1973, confronted with your boots, they had memories of, of 1969. Well, now you're telling me something that I didn't know, which is really cool. I didn't know I, it until we had Larry Bell on the program a couple of years ago, and he I told see. me the story, and, and then we went off and found it. Ah, <laughs> ah. Well, oh, nobody told me this, uh, but I knew one thing. They said, we'll have to nail the boots to the floor. And I said, what? Crucify my boots? And they said, well, we have no choice because somebody can walk off with them. I said, how? They're big, hunk, hunky boots. What are they going to do? Just walk out past the guard? You can't do what? Put it in their pocket? This is ridiculous. And so they, they said, well, you figure it out. We give up. You have to do something or else we nail them. And I said, well, you're not nailing them. I'm, I'm, I'm taking them home. I'm not coming in. That's it. It's show's over. And then I said, all right, Eleanor, cool it. Cool it. Uh, you want the show. This is the right ending for the boots. Now, this is how you always plan they would end. Actually, I always thought the Whitney would ask me first, but it was this moment. And then the, I said, okay, we'll build a room for them. 
and that's the room that's actually now in, in LACMA in the LA County Museum's collection. The little room, uh, it's sort of a, like a furnished room painted, uh, you know, sickly green with a bulb hanging from the corner, I mean from the ceiling, and there's a sort of a sink, dirty sink. You can see a little bit, the only thing you could see through it is you could see through that little peephole, you know, that people in cities would have to see what bad guy is standing outside the door. And there was a chain lock, so you could look through the little bit of that's exposed. So you didn't see most of them, and they were all there. And there was mattresses, and you know, I don't, I don't even remember. Maybe a bo- beer bottle or two, and they're sort of sitting around in the mattresses, whatever. You could only see a few, really. And um, but they were there, and there's a radio playing some country western music or whatever, and uh, very softly. And in a sense, that was wonderful because the other thing would they just be a pair of rubber boots. But this way, because they gave me this problem, because they were what I thought was old-fashioned and, you know, stupid, they actually, as a result, I got a much better exhibition because the installation of the room was beautiful and it maintained the kind of glamour that the boots, you know, which are just big, you know, heavy men's rubber boots, and they they maintained their kind of separation and glamour because you never really got close to them. You didn't see them. I mean, you saw them, but you only saw some of them and you could imagine the others in this room and it was their sort of New York pad. And it worked. It's one of those things, you know, you have a problem, you got to solve it. And, and I think I'm grateful, to them, <laughs> believe it or not, for, you know, behaving what I thought was so in such an old-fashioned, foolish way. It, it must be one of the earliest stories of how a conceptual artist or an artist with conceptual tendencies was confronted as confrontational as you can be confronted with old-school curatorial and art historical silos. And I wonder if you realized when you, when you first heard about what happened behind the scenes, if if you realize that that was probably a pretty key moment into yeah, how an artist... Yeah, the start of the breakdown of the old. Except, you know, the Museum of Modern Art has managed to retain... Uh, uh, I loved it when Martha Rosler went in there with a car. <laughs> yeah, know? although every, just about every... I mean, MoMA does still have a little bit of... I mean, it, it's dissolved a bit, but just about everywhere else, those silos are gone. And it does seem like that that must it have was been... One, I think you're right. Also, the piece, remember, the piece made its way through a distribution that was Ray Johnson was using the mails, you know, for hit and miss wonderful little messages that he would send around and little collages. But this was a sustained sort of picaresque. I thought of it as a kind of picaresque photo novella. And they, they made it around the world through the mails, which is, and without the a gallery, you know, like as in, you know, doing as an intercession between me and, and, you know, the audience. No, I sent them out and people then they'd write about it in newspapers and then people would write to the papers and the papers would send back the, because they'd show some of the pictures and they'd send back the, and they picked it up themselves. I didn't send it to the papers, but they, they would send me the letters and I'd put the people on the mailing list. They'd ask to be put on, not from the beginning, but just put them in to start, you know, from, and I, from where I was at in the narrative. 
And, uh, you know, it was totally, in that way, it was also uh, its own uh, its own way of, you know, presenting artists' work to, you know, in other words, not to be inhibited and imprisoned by the establishment. Like, here we go again. I don't want them to tell me how to live my life or whatever. Well, Eleanor Anton, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a real thrill. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.